0: So, you get your act together so that there isn't any more stupid pain around you than necessary. Well, so then the question might be, well, how would you go about getting your act together? And the answer to that, and this is a phenomenological idea too, it's something like, look around for something that bothers you and see if you can fix it. You can do this in a room. It's quite fun to do it just when you're sitting in a room, like a room, maybe your bedroom. You can sit there and just sort of meditate on it and think, okay, if I wanted to spend 10 minutes making this room better what would i have to do and you have to ask yourself that right it's not a command it's like a genuine question and things will pop out in the room that you know you like there's a stack of papers over there that's kind of bugging you and you know that maybe little order there would be a good thing and you know you haven't there's some rubbish behind your computer monitor that you haven't attended to for like six months and the room would be slightly better if it was a little less dusty and the cables weren't all tangled up the same way and like if you if you allow yourself just to consider the expanse in which you exist at that moment there'll be all sorts of things that'll pop out in it that you could just fix and you know I might say well if you were coming to see me for psychotherapy the easiest thing for us to do first would just be to get you to organize your room. You think, well, is that psychotherapy? And the answer is, well, it depends on how you conceive the limits of your being. And I would say, start where you can start, you know? If, if something announces itself to you, which is a strange way of thinking about it, as in need of repair, that you could repair, then, hey, fix it. You fix a hundred things like that, your life will be a lot different. Now, I often tell people, too, fix the things you repeat every day. Because people tend to think of those as trivial, right? You get up, you brush your teeth, you, do, you have your breakfast, you know, you, you have your routines that you go through every day. Well, those, those probably constitute 50% of your life. And people think, well, they're mundane, I don't need to pay attention to them. It's like, no, no, that's exactly wrong. The things you do every day, those are the most important things you do. Hands down. All you have to do is do the arithmetic. you figure it out right away. So, a hundred adjustments to your broader domain of being and there's a lot less rubbish and there's a lot less rubbish around and a lot fewer traps for you to step into. And so that's in keeping with Jung's idea about erasing the dis- once you've got your mind and your emotions together and once you're acting that out, then you can extend what you're willing to consider yourself and start fixing up the things That are part of your broader extent now sometimes you don't know how to do that so you might say imagine you're walking down blur street and there's this guy who's like alcoholic and schizophrenic and has been on the streets for 10 years he sort of stumbled towards you and you know incoherently mutters something that's a problem and it would be good if you could fix it but you haven't got a clue about how to fix that you just walk around that and go find something that you could fix because if you muck about in that not only is it unlikely that you'll help that person, it's very likely that you'll get hurt yourself. So, you know, just because while you're experiencing things announce themselves as in need of repair doesn't mean that it's you right then and there that should repair them. You have to have some humility. You know, you don't walk up to a helicopter that isn't working and just start tinkering away with it. You, you have to stay within your domain of competence. But most of the time, if people look at their lives, you know, it's a very interesting thing to do I like, the, I like the idea of the room Because you can do that at the drop of a hat You know, you go back to where you live And sit down and think, okay I'm going to make this place better for half an hour What should I do? And you have to ask And things will just pop up like mad And it's partly because Your mind is a very strange thing As soon as you give it a name A genuine aim It'll reconfigure the world in keeping with that aim that, That's actually how you see to begin with and so if you set it a task, especially, you have to be genuine about it, which is why you have to bring your thoughts and emotions together, and then you have to get them in your body so you're acting consistently. You have to be genuine about the aim. But once you aim, the world will reconfigure itself around that aim, which is very strange. And, and it, it's, it's, it's technically true. You know, the best example of that, you have all seen this video where you... Watch the basketballs being tossed back and forth between members of the white team versus the black team and while you're doing that, a gorilla walks up into the middle of the video, and you don 't see it it 's like you know if you thought about that experiment for about five years, that would be about the right amount of time to spend thinking about it because what it shows you is that you see what you aim at, and that man, if you can get one thing through your head in as a consequence of even being in university, that would be a good one. You see what you aim at. And so because one inference you might draw from that is, be careful what you aim at. Right? It, what you aim at determines the way the world manifests itself to you. And so if the world is manifesting itself in a very negative way, one thing to ask is, are you aiming at the right thing? Now, you know, I'm not trying to reduce everybody's problems to... An improper aim. People get cut off at the knees for all sorts of reasons, you know, they get sick, they have accidents. There's a random element to being, that's for sure. But, and so you don't want to take anything, even that particular phrase, too far. You want to bind it with the fact that random things do happen to people, but it's still a great thing to ask. What's the difference between the successful and the unsuccessful? The successful sacrifice things get better as the successful practice their sacrifices the questions become increasingly precise and simultaneously broader what's the greatest possible sacrifice for the greatest possible good and the answers become increasingly deeper and profound you can conjure up a representation of yourself you can conjure up a variety of potential representations of yourself into the in the future you can lay out how those future representations of yourself are likely to prevail or fail you can cull the potential use in the future that will fail and then you can embody the ones that will succeed you do that well simultaneously conjuring up a representation of your current state and determining for yourself because of your undue suffering which elements of your pathetic being need to be given up so that you can move forward into that future and the goal What is it that you're aiming at with that work and that sacrifice? That's the ultimate question. It's the question I was trying to address in that writing. What is it that you're trying to do? Well, you're trying to improve the future. We believe that the future can be improved. We believe that it can be improved as a consequence of our sacrificial work. And so, once again, what are the limitations? What are the limits to that? What are the necessary limits to that? I would say we don't know. I would say as well that that's actually something that the entire corpus of biblical stories is trying desperately to articulate to figure out and articulate, right? We, 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 we conjured up this remarkable idea. The future exists. We can see it even though it's only potential. We can adjust our behavior in the present in order to maximize our probability of success in the future. How best to do that? Well, the idea is something like, don't hesitate to offer the ultimate sacrifice if you want the future to turn out ultimately well now obviously that idea is clothed in metaphysical speculation and religious imagery but it still remains an intensely practical issue right what is it that you could contract for let's say if you were willing to give up everything about you that's weak and unworthy then you were talking about negotiation right and you said well don't You said something like, don't people who feel good about themselves, aren't they able to negotiate better? And negotiation is actually a practical issue to some degree. Like, the first thing is that you have to figure out what you want. Because you were saying, well, it's not merely rational. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's for sure. You have to bargain from a position of authority, let's say, not power. Authority is a better word. But you don't have authority unless you know what you're talking about, and unless you can bring... And you can't say no unless you've set yourself up with alternatives. So when you go to your boss and you negotiate for a raise, you need to have this sort of CV that enables you to go find another job. And you have to have your CV prepared. And you have to have looked for another job. And you have to be able to get one. Because then you can go in there and say, "Um, I'm not as productive as I could be at my current level of remuneration. It's not reflective of what I'm able to do. And uh, I want this. And this is what will happen if you give me this. This will be the good things that will happen. And what do you think of that? And the person... Is going to know, even by the way that you hold yourself while you're having the discussion, whether or not you're someone with options. And you can't fake that. Well, you can. But it's not helpful. Like, it, it just doesn't work for very many iterations. You have to. It's, it's, it's not rational. You're preparing yourself for battle. That's what you're doing. And you can't be weak when you prefer, prepare yourself for battle. Because if the person says no, I'm not giving you a raise, which is exactly what they should say, because what are they going to do? Just, like, sprinkle the money around? You need to be able to say, okay, then, there will be consequences that you don't like. And that's what it means to say no to someone. No means, if you continue to push this, things will happen that you don't like. Now, in that case, it'll be, I'll depart and take my talents with me. And if they don't care, well, then you're in the wrong business, or you don't have any talents to begin with, right? Which is, so, in, in order to negotiate properly, you have to put yourself in a position where you can, you can push back as hard as you're going to be pushed on. And that means you have, to open your, you have to open up your space of available options. Because otherwise, the person says no, and that's it. You're done. Well, you'll lose then. It's, it's as straightforward as that now with regards to the self-esteem part is practice on small things because you build the skills forget about the self-esteem it isn't about being confident or feeling confident or any of that it's about knowing bloody well how to negotiate start with small things you know so you'll notice that there are things in your relationships in particular that aren't the way you want them to be and that you could see how could be improved it's like figure out how they can be improved negotiate with your partner Make the incremental improvement. Keep doing that. You'll get better and better at it. And then you'll be able to go out and have a harder negotiation in the world. So, you know, people have told me many times that when they listen to me talk, they're hearing things that they already know, knew but didn't know how to say. It's something like that. And this is one of those things that I think is exactly like that. I mean... I think it's at the very core of our moral knowledge, which is our behavioral knowledge and our perceptual knowledge. I mean, let's get this straight. Moral knowledge is no trivial matter. It's knowledge about how it is that you orient yourself in the world. There's no more profoundly necessary form of knowledge. Well, it's predicated on on something that's exactly like this. We know that we have to make sacrifices. We know that we have to aim at what's good. So then why isn't that we don't aim at what's best and make the sacrifices that are necessary in order to bring that into play? I think... It seems to me that in some sense that's self-evident. The question is why we don't do it, but there's answers to that too already in the material that we've covered. Life is hard, and it hurts people. It's rife with limitation, and some of it's arbitrary, and it's no wonder, and some of it's unjust, and some of it's worse, some of it's malevolent, which is even worse and something I haven't talked about at all in this lecture. It's not surprising that that combination of vicissitude can turn people against being. But I think even when that happens, and even when people have the kind of history that if they revealed to you you would say well it's no wonder you turned out that way the people who turn out that way still know that it's wrong they still know that however deep their own suffering however arbitrary their own suffering however much that's caused by the malevolence of others as well as the tragedy of existence that that does not in any way justify their turning away from the good and i believe everyone knows that to what end should you devote your life? It's a good question. That's the question of the meaning of life. And, you know, people need meaning in their lives because their lives are difficult. Maybe you think, no, life isn't that hard. It's you know, Not only is it that hard, it's even harder than you think. You're going to be tested, that's for sure. And if you have a sustaining meaning, then there's, there's well, Nietzsche said himself, uh, he who has a why can bear any how. Why would you look in the darkest places? Because in the darkest places, you can find what still shines. If it can shine in the darkest places, then you know it's a real light. And so you look at the things you don't want to look at. You have to look at the things you don't want to look at. Well, why do meaningful things? Well, first of all, what is meaning? But then why do meaningful things? And the answer is, well, because life is suffering and malevolence. It's ineradicable at its core. It's like... That will take you out. Make no mistake about it. You need something to, you need to be armed with virtue in order to, for that not to turn into hell. Really, you really need that. And it isn't just your hell, that's bad enough. That can be really bad, especially when you're contributing to it. Right, because then not only are you suffering, but you know you're the agent that's producing the suffering. And then maybe that's not just for you. It's like you're taking out your family. If you're really good at it, you're taking out large swaths of your community. That's hell. It's like, and that's real. And no one with any sense and any experience has any doubt that that's real. And then they all could easily think of how even though it's already bad, you could make it way worse. Everyone knows that. So what's the bulwark against that nobility of purpose. That's it. You have that, then you can then then you have something to set against the suffering and the malevolence. And you need it isn't optional. That's not optional. You cannot live without it. Not meaning without It's not optional, right? Well, that's and why it's such a deep instinct. Right. It's an instinct meaning. It's the instinct of life. My life is meaningless. It's the spirit has gone out of you. It's like, well, me, but and, you know, modern people, it's part of this process of criticism. We have criticized the idea of meaning so much that we don't really believe in it anymore. It's like, well, that's fine. You can not believe it, but try living without it and see how far you get with that. You need a reason to get out of bed on a terrible day. OK, what's that reason going to be? Well, let's think it through. You know, people who can get out of bed on a terrible day. Do you admire them? Yes. What are those people like? Are they taking responsibility for themselves? Definitely. Do they have excess capacity? So they're taking responsibility for other people? Yeah. Are they doing difficult things? Yes, obviously. The more you respect them, the more you also see that they're doing difficult things and doing them well. So what does that mean? Do some difficult things, do them well. So pick up your goddamn burden and and walk up the hill. Yep. I get it. And people do get it. And it's not surprising because that is the end. Un- that's the alternative to hell. Accept the burdensome condition of suffering voluntarily and you transcend it. It's like you've got a problem with the world. Hey, man, no wonder you have a problem with the world. Like the world is a pretty rough place and it could use some work. It's like, have you done all your work? If The answer to that is no, then I would say, Put in order what you can put in order. It's like, well, you have a problem. Okay, what's the problem? What are its constituent elements? What are the smallest implementable steps that we could take to start to to address the problem? Implement the best plan that you have at hand. That's it. You'll learn. It won't be be the right plan. It doesn't matter. You'll learn. Implementing that plan, you'll learn a whole bunch. And then the next plan you make will be better. Implement the best plan you have at hand. Imagine that you are or were in a bad relationship. And maybe you weren't that happy about it, but, you know, it was better than no relationship at all. And then the person that you were in a relationship betrayed you. And maybe they did that because you actually weren't that happy with the relationship anyways. Maybe they did that because you're a little bit naive. Or maybe they did that because you were a little bit too easy to get along with and as a consequence a little bit on the boring side. And so when they first leave you, it's a catastrophe because your world falls apart. But when your world falls apart, you're somewhere new it's possible to learn something new in that place. So you might learn, for example, that you should be a little sharper the next time that you go out with someone. Or you should be a little bit more careful about picking up on clues that your partner's bored with you. Or that maybe you should stop associating with lying psychopaths, and your life would be a lot more positive. And stop thinking that you have the capacity to redeem somebody that is not after redemption in the least. And what that means now and then is that when you fall into the belly of a whale and you're swallowed up by something that lurks underneath, that you can come out the other side transformed. And that's actually how people learn. Every time you learn something, you learn because something you did didn't work. And that exposes you to the part of the world that you don't understand. Every time you're exposed to part of the world that you don't understand, you have the possibility of rebuilding the structures that you use to interpret the world. That's often why it's more important to notice that you're wrong than it is to prove that you're right. One of the things that you're supposed to learn in university is precisely that. It might be useful to listen to people that annoy you on the off chance that they know something that, if they tell you, you can use instead of dying. Talking to people who agree with what you say is like walking around in a desert. You already know everything that they say. The reason you're associating with them in that situation is so that they never say anything that challenges you because you're afraid that if you go outside of what you understand, that you won't be able to tolerate the chaos. But it isn't the case. People have an unbelievable capacity to face and overcome things they don't understand. And not only that, that's essentially what gives life its meaning. The Buddhists say, life is suffering. And you think, well, if that's the case, why bother with it? And people do ask that question, and they ask it in ways that result in their own destruction and worse, in the destruction of others. So, for example, people who become particularly cruel, particularly in a genocidal manner, are more than willing to dispense with as many human beings as they can possibly train their sights on, because they're so disgusted by the nature of human limitation that they'd rather eradicate it. And lots of people become suicidal because they can't bear the conditions of their own existence. And suffering is real, and it's inescapable. So the question is, what do you do about it? You notice in your own life, and you can do this by watching your own life. I often ask my clients to do this. Say, look, watch your life for a week. And pretend you don't know who you are, because you don't know who you are, at all. What you understand most about yourself are the arbitrary presuppositions that you use to hem yourself in. And you act as if those presuppositions are true, so that the revelation of the full nature of your character won't terrify you. People hide in their own boxes, and it's not surprising, but it's not a good idea, because life is too hard to hide in a box. You can't manage it if you do that. If you watch yourself for a week, you'll see certain things. You'll see some of the time that you're resentful and annoyed. And those are times when you're either taking advantage of yourself or you're thinking improperly. Some of the time you'll be bored, in which case you're either undisciplined or you're probably pursuing something you don't want to pursue. And some of the time you'll actually be engaged in life. And the times that you're engaged in life, you won't notice that you're there, right? The distinction between subject and object disappears when you're engaged in something that you find meaningful. The purpose of life, as far as I can tell, from studying mythology and from studying psychology for decades is to find a mode of being that's so meaningful that the fact that life is suffering is no longer relevant. Or maybe that it's even acceptable. And I would say as well that people know when they're doing that. You know when you're doing that in part because you're no longer resentful. You say, geez, I could do this forever. Right, there's a timelessness, a timelessness that's associated with that state of being. From a mythological perspective, that's equivalent to brief habitation of the kingdom of God. That's the place where you are that's so meaningful that it enables you to bear the harsh preconditions of life without becoming resentful, bitter or cruel. And there's nothing that you can pursue in your life that will be half as useful as that. Don't remain in stasis. It's, you'll be, you get old way, way faster than you think. Time ticks away, man. Get at it. Get out there in the world. Have your adventure. Get the hell out there. Do something. Fail. Fail while you're trying. Then you'll learn why you failed. And then you won't have to fail again. It's like aim at something and progress towards it. And, you know, be willing to change your aim because what the hell do you know? But aim at something. And then at least you're oriented. And you have to aim at something that you believe would be worth trying. So, yeah, get at, get at it, man. Don't waste time.